Thanks for joining us online for today's message from our Sunday morning service, where we are learning how to make disciples who love God, love others, and serve the world. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged. For more information about Wilmot Center Missionary Church, go to wcmc.ca. Now prepare your hearts for what God wants to speak to you today. Good morning, church. Well, if you don't attend this church regularly and aren't familiar with the transition that we're going through presently, you may be wondering just who I am and what I'm doing up here. In fact, some of my family who's visiting and spending Thanksgiving Day with us may be wondering the same thing. Uh, Well, hopefully not who I am, but what I'm doing up here. In fact, it reminds me of the the, uh, funny little story about two Australian sailors who happened to be docking in London, England, and they decided to spend a night at the local pub. And after an evening of heavy drinking, they began to stumble their way to the door, and upon leaving the pub, they discovered that a dense fog had come down over the city of London. And unsteady on their feet and unsure where they needed to go, They saw a man at a distance near the entrance. And they called out to this man without realizing he was a highly decorated English officer. And they failed to see the medals hanging from his chest. And the one Australian sailor called out to him, Say, you bloke, over there, do you know where we need to go? Well, rather offended by that lack of respect, He turned to the two officers and said, Do you have any idea who I am? And the one Australian sailor turned to the other and said, He's in an even bigger mess than we are. We don't know where we're going, but that bloke doesn't even know who he is. (laughs) Well, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Mana Watsa, and I serve as an elder here at Wilmot Church. And where we're going this morning is on a journey to discover how to live and how to love like Jesus. How to live and how to love like Jesus. And whether you're a regular here, or whether you just happen to be visiting family this morning, or whether you're a skeptic and just not sure of where you're at in your faith journey, and you got dragged here because it was Thanksgiving Sunday and you just couldn't say no, I want to let you know that there is a challenge here in this message for each one of you. So several months ago, I was down in Atlanta. And for those of you who don't know, I I run basketball camps, or a team of us run basketball camps, so we're in the camp business. And I travel a lot to, to the U.S. where a lot of our camps take place in various states and cities. And while I was down in Atlanta, I, I finished one evening late at night with our staff and it was about midnight and I had to be north of Atlanta, an hour and a half north. 
in a small town, Rome, Georgia. And I had to be there for an early morning breakfast, which meant that I had to get up just a few hours later and take a 4.45 a.m. Uber ride. Now, when I typically travel, I take Uber rides or Lyft rides rather than renting a car because it allows me to get work done in between meetings or in between visits from one camp to the next. And so typically when I get into an Uber, I'll ask the driver their name, I'll have a little bit of small talk, but as quickly as possible, I want to get on to my work. And so I'll I'll attempt to keep the conversation to a minimum so I can get as much work done in between meetings as possible. But on this particular morning at 4.45 a.m., I was still pretty drowsy, so I had the initial small talk with the driver and found out his name, Sam, and I promptly dozed off. Well, when I woke up 45 minutes later or an hour later, I was a little bit curious as to what he was doing driving so early in the morning and whether, in fact, he regularly drove that early. So out of curiosity, I just asked him, and I I said, so Sam... What has you driving so early in the morning? Is this your full-time job? And he said, no, no, like most Uber drivers, I just, I'm just doing this on the side. And I said, why, why the early mornings? And he said, well, I suffer from a really severe case of insomnia. I just can't sleep at night. And insomnia, I'm having trouble falling asleep. He, he said, I just don't sleep at night. And usually, maybe I doze in and out for two or three hours He said, but I'll wake up at two in the morning and I just can't fall back asleep. And some of you can relate to that to varying degrees. And he shared with me the pain and the torment he experiences at night just lying there staring at the ceiling and not sleeping. And so he said he eventually just gets up and turns on Uber and drives for the rest of the night. So here we were at 4.45 in the morning, and he was taking me an hour and a half north of Atlanta City. And I felt compassion for him. Gosh, how difficult that would be to have sleepless night after sleepless night. And some of you know what that's like. And I've never experienced that. In fact, I'm the opposite. I fall asleep so quickly, I, I can fall asleep just about anywhere, anytime. And if you've spent any time with me, you've seen me sleeping in some of the most odd places imaginable. But he had the opposite situation. And in feeling compassion for him, as we were getting towards, uh, getting close to Rome, uh, Georgia, Rome, Georgia, I said to him, I said, uh, just out of curiosity, Sam, do you have any type of faith background? Because I had already just shared with him some of, the, some of what I knew in terms of sleep research. Because I work with athletes all the time, one of the topics we address with athletes is sleep because it's such a critical com- uh, part of their development as an elite-level athlete. And so I had already shared with him some best practices around sleep and visualization and relaxation, and he had tried many of these things already. And wanting to help. I didn't just want to leave him and say, huh, tough life. (laughs) Thanks for the ride. And so I just asked him, I said, do you have any any type of faith background or or faith perspective, Sam? And he said, no, I I don't, not really anything whatsoever. And I said, well, I believe in the power of prayer. And for those of you who are here with me last week, I shared briefly when I came to the front about the power of prayer. And I I said, Sam, I believe that prayer changes things. 
I believe that prayer changes things. And if you'd be willing, I'd love to, I'd love to pray for you, you know, be, before we arrive. And uh, he said, oh, if it can help, I'll take anything. And so I just asked him, have you ever had anyone pray for you before? Just wanted to see kind of what I was getting into. And he said, no, never. And I said, well, here's how it kind of go down. It's basically the same as me having a conversation with you. The way I talk to God is the same as how I talk to others. And so we'll just have a conversation uh, with God here. And he said, okay, sounds good. And I closed my eyes and I prayed for Sam in that car. And I said, amen. And I opened my eyes and to his surprise, he was fast asleep, out like a light, head on the steering wheel. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Gosh, that would have made a great ending to the story. That's not what happened. In fact, I waited until the vehicle had come to a complete stop before I prayed for him. And I prayed for him, and I said, Amen, and he looked at me, and I could tell he was touched. I could tell he was touched, and he said, thank you very much, and I encouraged him, and I went on my way. Now, I'm not saying all of that for you to say, oh, look at me, or how thoughtful, or how kind, or what a good Christian Mono is. Oh, I should really do that. The opposite. The opposite. Because I spent the rest of that day thinking about how many times I've missed it. How many times I've gotten an Uber ride after Uber ride and just as quickly as possible gotten to my work. Why? Because I've focused in on what I needed to get done. I focused in on my world and my work and my needs and my desires and my challenges and how so often I've missed seeing the needs, the challenges, and the desires of others. And maybe you can relate. Maybe at times you may have missed similar opportunities. And I think the reason we miss these opportunities is because we tend to go inward so easily. We tend to get wrapped up in our own lives. Just give me a head nod if, if, if you can relate to that. We get wrapped up in our own lives. We zoom in on ourselves. But you know what? This isn't uncommon, so don't feel badly. This is the common plight of man. This is the condition of mankind. In fact, the scriptures call it sin. Sin, the condition of our heart. Not sins as as the act of committing this sin or another, but it's the very condition that exists for all of us as part of being a part of the human race We have a proclivity towards or a tendency towards looking inward. We look inward. We zoom in and we so often miss the opportunity to truly, to truly see others and to see their needs, challenges, and desires. So with that being said this morning, 
I'd like to share with you an answer to this challenge. But before I get there, where do we see it? Well, first of all, I see it with teams. As a longtime basketball coach, with nearly any team I've ever coached, when there was ever disunity or a breakdown in the team, and in basketball it's not just five fingers, you become one fist. Well, when there's a breakdown in that, it nearly is always the result of an individual player or several players beginning to look inward beginning to look at their lack of playing time, their lack of opportunity, their frustrations, their challenges, which is the exact opposite of the very essence of what it means to be in team. Because team in its very essence is the giving of your self-interest, the giving of your desires, your needs, your challenges for the betterment of the team. The trade-off, that's what being a part of a team truly means. And what being a part of a family should mean as well. And speaking of family with those that I've had the privilege of supporting through some of the darkest hours of their lives, those who I've supported through marital breakdowns, nearly every time it's come as as the result of at least one spouse, if not both, choosing to focus primarily on their own desires needs and challenges and when both parties or even one begins to look inward instead of outward the walls go up unconditional love is replaced with conditional love and they're clearly not meeting the condition of loving you and so you stop loving them it happens in every context in every environment And it's the condition of our souls. So this morning, I'd like to talk about the answer to that. Because at the end of our lives, I don't believe any one of us want to be remembered as being self-absorbed or self-focused. Regardless of the level of success we may aspire to, we long to be about something bigger than ourselves. And surprisingly, listen closely to this. This is an important one. Surprisingly, becoming a Christian does not necessarily mean that it will automatically change your inward bent. Let me say this again. It's an important one for us to hear, especially for those of you who are followers of Christ in this room. Becoming a Christian does does not automatically change your inward bent. It just means you're forgiven for it. It just means you're forgiven for it. So this morning I want to share with you what the Apostle Paul says is the answer. And I I want to help you to see the life of Christ through a brand new lens. Quite possibly a brand new lens this morning. The outward mindset. The outward mindset. So the, the central passage that we'll be taking a look at this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. It's a common passage for probably many in this room. But let me just give you a little bit of a historical context here to the book, book of Philippians for those of you that may not be uh, that familiar with it. So first of all, Philippians. It was written to the Philippian people, the people from the city of Philippi. 
The book was written nearly 2,000 years ago, approximately 20 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. The city of Philippi was in the province of Macedonia in the country of Greece. Paul had visited Philippi. He had planted a church in Philippi. And now 10 years later, the apostle Paul, who himself had had his life radically transformed by Christ, was now a prisoner for his faith in Christ. And he writes this letter back to the people of Philippi, the Philippians. He writes this letter back as a letter of exhortation or a letter urging them and encouraging them to live out the faith that he planted in them. Now, it's one of the few letters of the 13 different epistles that are in the New Testament, it's one of the few that is a word of encouragement. Many times it's a word of rebuke and telling them they need to make significant changes, they're getting it all wrong. But in the case of the book, of the Philipp- book to the Philippian people, it was an exhortation, an encouragement, a challenge. So I want to take you through this challenge that he gives them here this morning. Let's look at Philippians 2. Verses 3 to 8 together. And we'll put it up on the screen for you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, note the bolded words, in humility value others above yourself. Let me pause there. This is from the New New International Translation, New International Version. What I'd like to read for you is the same verse from the message. The message was a Bible written by one man, Eugene Peterson, who was writing to his congregation, who wrote or translated the Bible into kind of common language. See, the Bible originally, or the New Testament, was written in street Greek. It was written predominantly in Greek, but in street Greek, or the common slang of the day. But when it's been translated into English, it's generally been translated into more formal language. So Eugene Peterson went on a mission to help his congregation kind of get to the the heart of the matter with the words. And so he kind of rewrote the Bible, known as the message, in this kind of street Greek or street English common slang. So let me just read this passage to you so you know how he said it. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. So let's come on back to this. If we can bring it back up on the screen. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility value others above yourself. Humility. What does it mean to have humility? Humility is having a proper perspective of yourself in this world. And what is the proper perspective? According to the scriptures, the proper perspective is knowing that we were made by God. In fact, we are nothing without him. His very breath is in our lungs. In other words, we can't take credit for anything. Everything we have has been a gift from him. And in fact, anything we've done with those gifts that we may even think is the result of our hard work and our efforts and our dedication, even those are gifts he bestowed upon us. He placed those character traits within us, or at minimum, he placed the models and the inspiration for us to live out those quality, those character qualities and to grow them. And so humility is knowing your place before God, that he is our creator and that we are nothing Apart from him. 
And that gives us then a proper perspective on others because then we recognize that others too are made in God's image. And we may have, in fact, as as Warren Buffett has once said, we may have won the ovarian lottery in terms of where we have been born, being born in this country with the freedoms that we enjoy and all the blessings that we have and the opportunities that we have. And this time, this period and time in which we live, all of these things were given to us. And that gives us a proper perspective towards God and towards each other. But there's something you need, to, you need to note here. Value others. Let me just stop. Others. We can't fully understand what he is saying here because it's so commonplace in our society and our culture. But if you do a rewind to 2,000 years ago, everyone's value was based on their lot in life. And if you didn't have a persona in the Greek, which means your personhood. If, if you were not a Roman citizen, if you didn't have wealth, you weren't even considered a person. You had no dignity. You were a nothing. You were either a servant or a slave. This is so countercultural that we can't even understand the world and the context by which they thought of themselves and others. And so here in the different translations, in humility, value others. Another translation says, in humility, esteem others. Another translation says, consider others more worthy than yourself. Consider others. It's not that others are more worthy, but that we're called to consider others more worthy. In other words, if you think of someone that you would highly respect, that you would love to meet, that you would consider it an honor and a privilege to be in their presence even for a few moments, the Apostle Paul is saying, treat everyone the way you would treat that individual. Others. Others. So that would have meant servants and slaves and those who had authority and those who had nothing. In fact, in the second or third century, one of the bishops had written a letter to the congregations that he oversaw, and he actually said this. He said, if a wealthy man comes into your church, do not stop the service to give him a place of prominence. But if a pauper comes into the church, stop the service and give him or her a place of prominence, even if it means giving up your own seat. This was so countercultural to how everyone lived. How everyone lived. Those who had no value, those who were the paupers, those who were the peasants, those who were the servants and slaves, saw them, saw them as that. Unless they had a faith in God, they saw their life as being meaningless. And as we see later on in the scriptures we'll take a look at with Christ, those who had the power and authority treated others as if their lives were meaningless. Because everyone's standing in society was based on what you were born into and what you were born with. That's why it was so audacious that Jesus would call Matthew a tax collector, a sinner, to be one of his followers. It was outrageous. Jesus with a woman at the well talking to a Samaritan, someone of another background and perspective, I mean, just didn't happen. And here we are now 20 to 30 years later and and the Apostle Paul is emphasizing Jesus' life message. Jesus breathed dignity into others 
And the Apostle Paul is saying to do the same with humility, acknowledging that we're all on the same level. We're all on the, on the same level. In humility, value others above themselves, above yourselves. Consider others more worthy. Now notice he doesn't say consider yourself nothing because he knows we're all made in God's image. And because we're all made in God's image, we all have tremendous value. So when actually, when, when we devalue ourselves and try and say we're nothing, what we actually are doing is going inward. So he doesn't say you're nothing. He just says value others even more so than you value ourselves. Let's go on to the next verse. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I highlighted the word interests here because the word interests in the original Greek was actually a filler word. In other words, you can replace it with a lot of other things. Do not focus on not looking to your own stuff, not looking to your own happiness, not looking to your own goals, not looking to your own desires, not looking to your own needs, not looking to your own challenges, not looking to your own stresses, not looking to your own financial affairs, not looking to your own dreams, but each of you to the happiness each of you to the financial needs of, each of you to the needs, desires, and challenges of the others, of the others. Let's go on to the next verse. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I got to stop here because this is where the penny just dropped for me and everything changed. Mindset. So you got to know, coming from a coach and a, a basketball background, mindset is everything in sports. When you get to a certain level where the level, the, the the playing field is level in terms of skills and athleticism, mindset becomes everything. The great athletes of our time, the Gretzkys and the LeBron Jameses and the Jordans of this world, what they have over every other athlete is the mindset, the mental edge. So I get that. I teach that. So when I saw mindset here, it just leapt off the page. Just leapt, leapt off the page to me. And it immediately made me think back to a few months ago when I was in Israel. And I had the opportunity to go to Israel with an organization called Peace Players International. And Peace Players takes Jewish kids and Palestinian kids and uses basketball or sport for social change. And what that means is they help Jewish kids and Palestinian kids play together, which they would typically never do. In fact, there's a wall that prevents it, so they have to get custom visas for the Palestinian kids even to come into Israel in order to be able to play. And they break down the cultural and the religious walls by helping the kids to see each other as human beings. They help them to see the needs and the desires and the challenges of, of the other. And in doing so, they begin to develop friendship and they begin to create change. I had the opportunity to go over there and I spent time with the gentleman who had, who had brought the entire curriculum to the organization, which is a thriving as an organization and, and they do work in many different countries in the world now. And I was learning about this mindset that they teach. They actually call it the outward mindset. And it was written by uh, uh, the, the um, originators of a book called The Outward Mindset. The Arbinger Institute wrote this about how you can zoom out. That's my language, not theirs. Instead of zoom in. And so when 
it says in this passage, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. You look back to the previous verses. What, what was that mindset that Christ had? Like he didn't look to his own needs, but to the needs of others. And all of a sudden the penny dropped for me. And Jesus had an outward mindset. What Jesus continually demonstrated and continually taught was the ultimate outward mindset. He never zoomed in on himself. He zoomed out towards the needs, desires, and challenges of others. And so that immediately began for me a race through scripture. A race through scripture to validate. Is that actually correct? Did Jesus, is Jesus the ultimate demonstration of the outward mindset? But let me finish off this verse before we take a look at some passages of Jesus' own words himself. Next verse, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Let me read this one more time from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Just for those of you who are having trouble getting your minds around these words, because the first time I read it, I got down and huh? I got to read this a second or third time to kind of really grasp what is the Apostle Paul saying here. So here it is in the message. Jesus had equal status with God, but did not think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of being God and took on the status of a slave and became human. Let's go back to that verse that, we, that, that I had just shared from the NIV version. Because in the NIV version, it said he took on the nature of a servant. And Eugene Peters said, said he took on the status of a slave. Stop there. Let's understand this. This goes against everything that anyone thought of when they thought of the gods. When they thought of the gods, any intersection that any gods had 2,000 years ago with mankind, God was the dominant force. God was the orchestrator of all events. This thought wouldn't have even been fathomable for people in New Testament times 2,000 years ago. The entire concept that God, 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 the creator, if he was to show up on planet Earth, he's coming like some of those action movies we see in our movie theaters. He's coming with force and power. That's the only way. This thought that he would come as a servant, as a slave, unfathomable. Unfathomable. No one could even dream that up. That, I mean, that defies logic, defies everything that they would have known or believed. Yet the Apostle Paul says that's how he came giving up all the privileges that came with him being God. And so what did we see? We saw Jesus come as a servant. In fact, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus demonstrated his servant's heart. He demonstrated his servant's nature in that single act, but actually lived out throughout his lifetime by continually putting aside his, any of his needs, desires, or challenges in order to focus on the needs, challenges, and desires of others. And he demonstrated it 
through actually washing their feet. But that was just a simple act to show them what they would be called to do. And finally, to round out that passage in verse 8, Philippians 2, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If you notice the word obedient is highlighted there. Why obedient? Not only did Jesus demonstrate and model the perfect example of an outward mindset towards others, he demonstrated an outward mindset towards his father. He said, your plan, not my plan, your ways. He demonstrated obedience, perfect obedience, and as it says, to death, even death on a cross. So with that being said, let's take a look at the bookends of Jesus' life. We can't unpack all of Jesus' life to take a look at how he demonstrated this outward mindset. But what I'd like to do is take a look at the beginning of his ministry, and then three years later, the end of his life, his dying words, to take a look at how he demonstrated the outward mindset. Now, I'm not going to put all the scriptures on at the front or on, on, on the screen. I'll just put the words of Jesus. And let's go ahead and start with Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verses 1 to 13. This is a familiar story. Whether you've been in church much or little or never, you've probably heard this story. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan where he had just been baptized by John the Baptist and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. I call that the understatement of the century. He hadn't eaten for 40 days or 40 nights. He was in the wilderness and he's apparently hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What's the temptation? The temptation here is for Jesus to zoom in on himself, on the real tangible physical need he had for food has to tempt him to meet his own needs, to use the God powers that he had legitimately, that he legitimately had as God's son, to use them illegitimately to focus on himself. Why, is it, why would that be an illegitimate use? Because God himself does not look inward. And the devil attempts to tempt him to do so. But of course, Jesus resists and says, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Well, first of all, I think Satan was overextending what his authority and powers truly were. But in this temptation... Jesus, or Satan, attempts to address what he thought Jesus' greatest desire was. Why did he think Jesus' greatest desire was to assume power and dominion and authority? Because that's what Satan himself wanted when he was in heaven. And that's what got him thrust out of heaven by God himself. 
And so, not surprisingly, that's what he thought Jesus would want as well. And so he attempts to tempt him. I will give you all the authority and splendor. But Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus turns him back to scripture both times. So then we get to the final temptation. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. Did you catch it? He was challenging Jesus's godhood. His godhood. Come on, guys. You know what it's like if you've had somebody challenge challenge your manhood. Somebody challenges your manhood. They're calling to your ego. Hey, step up. Hey, prove it. In this, Satan was attempting to challenge his godhood. If you are. He knew he was the son of God, but he said, if you are. If you are. Now, he did in the first, time, the first temptation as well. If you recall, if you were the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. But Jesus didn't focus on the first part. Jesus focused on the latter. Man shall not live by bread alone. So he's, oh, he got distracted by the bread part. So this time I'm going to come back at him again with just, if you are, prove it. Tried to get him to turn inward to his own ego, to just show him who he was. But Jesus answered, It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And in these three temptations, Satan attempts to take Jesus at his place of greatest vulnerability, tries to get him to turn inward. And he resists. And by the way, for those of you who may not be sure where you stand on Satan, they really exist. Here's something interesting to think about. Isn't Isn't this interesting? Isn't it true that at our moments of greatest vulnerability or greatest weakness, that's when temptation tends to come. Is that just a coincidence? Now, there's one final verse. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until until an opportune time. What is this opportune time? You'll see shortly. Now let's shift to the end of Christ's life. So in doing so, I want you to know we're skipping over countless stories of Jesus living out an outward mindset and Jesus teaching an outward mindset. And I just found myself going page after page through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John reading the words of Christ. And I encourage you to do the same to see how he lived out this outward mindset. So here we go. I'm going to fly through these. I want want to take you very quickly through five short passages of how Jesus lived out this outward mindset. Luke chapter 22, verses 34, 39 to 44. Jesus went out as usual. So first of all, context. This is the end of Jesus' life. He's in his final hours. He has taught, he has lived, he has loved. He has performed countless miracles. He's gone to Jerusalem and he knows he's going to die. For that's why he came to live. The disciples don't know this. The disciples think that Jesus has come to take the city by storm and to overthrow the Roman Empire and to bring God's dominion and God's kingdom there on earth. That's what they're anticipating. But Jesus knows that's not the case and he tries to explain it to them several times over and they just can't get it. They can't get it yet. But here's Jesus. 
He went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's, uh, about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. This is the closest I could find to Jesus going inward. I searched the scriptures. Did Jesus ever go inward? Did he ever zoom in on himself? This is the closest. Here it is. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. See, he was fully God, but he was fully man as well. And he knew what was about to come. And in fact, in that very moment, he was experiencing hematidrosis. Hematidrosis is where you actually sweat blood due to such high levels of stress and anxiety. It's where the blood vessels that feed the sweat glands actually rupture and burst and cause you to sweat blood. Now, for the most of the past 2,000 years, no one even knew this was possible. And in fact, it was only in 2004 that it was recognized as a condition because it's so rare. In fact, only a few dozen people in human history have even been diagnosed with this condition. But 2,000 years ago, it was written about. And Jesus sweat blood. That's the level of stress he was under. So why was he under this level of stress? Before I read the rest of his words, why was he under that level of stress and anxiety. One, he knew the physical death that he was about to experience. Secondly, we've all felt the pain when we've read a story or heard about a tragedy in the news. And in recent days, there have been many. And we can feel the pain of somebody else's suffering. But what Jesus was about to experience was the suffering of the world, the weight of sin of mankind, past, present, and future. He was about to take it all on to his shoulders. Everything that had been done and would be done, he was about to own that and feel that. The emotional, the spiritual strain that he would have experienced, none of us can even imagine. Yet, even in that moment, he doesn't make a demand of God. He purely asks his father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Here it is. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Even in his desire, he surrenders it fully over to the Lord for his plan and maintains an outward mindset, zoomed out to obey even unto death. Let's go on to the next passage. A few verses later in Luke chapter 22, verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up to him and the man who was called Judas. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, Judas, one of the 12 disciples who had been with Jesus for three years, is about to backstab him. The greatest betrayal in human history is about to take place. And he approaches him with a kiss probably to let the soldiers know, hey, this is the guy, because it was dark, and maybe the soldiers hadn't met him before, so they needed to know who's the guy, because Jesus was there with his disciples. And he gives him a kiss. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man, how he re related to himself, or affectionately called himself? Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Who was that one? Peter. Peter. Peter was that overzealous guy who was always ready to 
just jump into things without thinking twice. And even though they asked the question, hey, should we take action? Peter didn't wait for the response. And I do have one question with this passage. I don't know if you've thought about this. I've thought about this many times. He cut off the man's ear. Obviously, Peter was a fisherman. So quite evidently, he wasn't very competent with a sword. But I'm trying to picture how that even happens. I mean, he cut off his ear. Not he cut off his arm. Not he cut off his head. He cut off his ear. Like, I'm trying to picture how you do that with force and quickly and only get the man's ear. And then picturing, like, did the man's ear literally fall off or was it just dangling? These are the thoughts that I have. As I read scripture, these are the thoughts that I have. And listen to the final verse, though. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Backdrop. Judas was in the process of betraying the Son of God, the greatest betrayal in human history. How do we feel when we're betrayed? Bitter? Angry? Resentful? Jesus, in the midst of that moment still took a soldier who was about to be one of the people who were going to beat him and thrash his body to a pulp. And knowing that, he still had compassion and healed his ear. One of the very soldiers that was about to beat him. And he healed him. Amazing. Let's go on a few verses later. Luke chapter 23. Verses 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said to the masses. Remember, he's now hanging on the cross, dying one of the most painful deaths imaginable, excruciating pain. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Did you catch that? Had you missed that previously? The devil tempted Satan. The devil tempted Satan. Rewind. The devil tempted Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. If you are the son of God. And the very end of that passage, he said he would return at a more more opportune time. Listen closely to this. They said he, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah. Seems that the devil was working through others. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar and said, if you are the, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself testing his godhood again. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there even hurled insults at him too. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. There was a chorus of naysayers. There was a chorus of those who were saying, who were saying, if you really are, then prove it. Here's what I wish. This is my secret desire. I know Jesus had to die. He had to die for humanity, for the sins of the world, to forgive us. But couldn't he have just come down off the cross just for about 30 seconds? Or just floated in the air and just pointed down like some of our modern day action movies and just annihilated a few of those guys? And then just gone back onto the cross and said, it is finished. (laughs) I mean, that would have been beautiful. That would have been beautiful. That would have made an epic movie. (laughs) 
But he didn't. He didn't. He resisted the temptation to show his greatness, to show his godness. And despite the chorus of insults, he remained on the cross. He remained on the cross. And here's the final passage. Oh, no, no. It goes on before I share with your final passage, the last verse. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said to the other criminal. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. They were just a few hours or a few minutes from death. And he declares his greatest need and desire. Remember me. And then Jesus does the remarkable. He gives him the assurance of salvation. He meets his deepest need and greatest desire. Despite the life that he had lived, Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In paradise. Even while on the cross, even moments from his own death, he sees the need of another a desperate plea of a broken man, and he meets the need. Finally, just imagine his own mother standing watching him die. A few of his disciples, many of them had fled, and here's what happens. Near the cross, Jesus stood his mother. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So they're all there. Their hopes are now dashed. What on earth had just happened? They had believed that he was God's son, that he was the anointed, that he was about to overthrow the entire Roman Empire. All their hopes and dreams were hung on one man who now hung on the cross. And Jesus, even seeing their pain, seeing their own while no one outwardly criticized him, many of the disciples had ran off, His own family were now in mourning, but at the same time questioning, what have we just believed all our lives for his mother, all her life with Jesus? Yet he he doesn't go there. He stays outward. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing there, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, John, here is your mother. So evidently, Mary's husband, Joseph, Jesus' father, had already died. And Jesus saw his mother's greatest need going forward, somebody to take care of her. And while hanging on the cross moments before his death, he says, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Stunning. Stunning. None of us can even fathom what it would be like to experience anything similar to what Jesus experienced, and yet he zoomed out and kept his entire focus on zooming out to obey his Father and zooming out to see and meet the needs of others. Absolutely remarkable. Now that's all good and well, but why should any of us consider zooming out and living with more of an outward mindset 
in our own lives. Well, here's why. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, your life will be more rewarding and fulfilling if you zoom out. If you concentrate your efforts on meeting the needs and challenges and desires of others, your relationships will be better. And even if not, then any of you in here would be, but even if you were just a selfish bloke, even if you were just a selfish bloke, people will just like you more. People would like you more because we all like those who help to meet our own needs. That's our inward bent and inward nature. But for those of you who are followers of Christ, why live with an outward mindset? Because we're called to. Because Jesus asks us to. Jesus calls us to be the hands and feet of Christ in a broken, hurting, and lost world. And in addition to that, because it's our privilege. Out of thanksgiving for all that he has done for us, we in turn do unto others. So what stops us from going inward? Where do we tend to go inward most? I'll keep this brief. Three ways that I tend to go inward most. Tell me if you can relate to any of these three. Here's where I get it wrong so often. Number one, comparing ourselves to others. We either get impressed by others or intimidated by others. Continually trying to compare ourselves to others, impress others. Gosh, I have to wrestle with my deepest desire to even have you be impressed by the message that I would share with you this morning. That inward bent runs deep in each one of us. And then we compare ourselves to others. I've heard it said, comparison is the thief of all joy. Resist the temptation to compare. Number two, where we tend to go inward, hearing criticism from others. Hearing criticism from others. We get defensive. Well, maybe you don't. I get defensive. Hearing criticism from others. And I go inward. But, no, that's not the case. Get defensive. Especially with those closest to us who see our faults. The easiest most easily. Easy. They see it. You know what I mean. And finally, number three, when our rights are violated. When our rights are violated. What type of rights? Well, our rights are those things that we think we're entitled to. When we fall away from humility and we think that we are deserving when we're not. Our right to good health. We get stripped of our health and we blame God because we thought we had a right to our health. Our right to be respected, and when somebody disrespects us, we'll let them know. Our right to be loved, when our spouse or a family member or a child or somebody else, a co-worker, a friend fails to love us the way we see fit, well, we go inward. Our right to justice, when somebody has wronged us. Jesus ex- extended grace. A right to our life working out the way we envisioned it would. Oh, that's a tough one. We think somehow we're deserving of certain things, even entitled. And when we do so, we tend to go inward. And that inward leads to all sorts of feelings. Frustration, resentment, anger, bitterness. When you experience those feelings, chances are, chances are, 
you've gone inward. So the next time you're feeling those feelings, do a gut check and ask yourself, what has taken me there? The good news is, though, we don't have to overcome the temptation to go inward alone. Listen to this verse. This is an important one. In John chapter 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. This is Jesus' own words. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. In other words, Jesus was telling the disciples before he left them, before he died, he said, don't be dismayed. There's something even better than me being with you. It's me in you. It's me in you. My spirit will live in you and will give you the power to change. So it's not a matter of trying harder. It's not a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of surrendering and inviting the Lord to work in and through you. Worship team, if you could come on up. I've got three really quick action steps for you. And they're simple ones. Are you ready for them? Give me a head nod if you're ready for these action steps. Super simple. Number one, next step, confess. Confess the times you've blown it, the times you've gone inward, and the times you haven't even known you've blown it and gone inward because it's just been the condition of your soul. Confess. Number two, commit. Commit to zooming out. Resist the temptation to go inward. Start with those closest to you. Find out what those closest to you, what their needs, challenges, and desires are. You might want to start with the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman to find out what their love languages are so that you can figure out how to meet their needs. And finally, number three, simple, take action. Take action. Probably the best action you can take is to read the very words of Jesus and see how he took action. Start small. At PGC in our company, with our summer staff, we call it the 10-foot rule. The 10-foot rule is when you're within 10 feet of someone, acknowledge them. Smile. Say hello with an uptone and a cheery voice. Make eye contact. Do that with your families at home. Do that with those of you who are at schools. Do that in your schools. Do that in your places of work. Start small. Acknowledge others. Then show an interest and a curiosity in others. Because in order to meet their needs, you have to see what their needs are. And the only way to truly see someone is to ask and to find out or to observe closely. So take action. Spend time with Jesus through his words through prayer and watch how the outward mindset grows in you each day. Before we close, I'd like to just give you 20 or 30 seconds. This 20 or 30 seconds is just going to be your time. Your time in the quietness of your own heart to confess or to commit or to consider how you will take action as you go from here. Take that 20 or 30 seconds right now.
my son just returned home from Edmonton. He was at a leadership conference with Jeff Gerber, and he heard the story of a, a young high school girl who, in walking through the hallways, got to know the custodian at the school, a Vietnamese man who had immigrated over 10 years plus, and she happened to ask him, have you ever, have you ever gone back to Vietnam? Do you have anyone still over there? And it turned out his parents were still living there. It turned out his siblings were over there. And he said, no, I haven't been back. I haven't been back in all these years. And she said, oh, how come? And he said, well, I can't really afford to go back, you know, with my wife and kids, but we'd love to. This high school girl, she decided to take action. She committed and took action. She went around to other students and found out if their parents had travel points, flight points, and ran around to the school and teachers and collected enough points to be able to cover not one flight, but four flights for him, his wife, and his two kids. And then she went around and took a collection and asked other students to give to cover all his spending money, to cover all all the other costs for his trip. And then they had a school-wide assembly. They had a school-wide assembly. And this Vietnamese man and his wife came. And unbeknownst to them, they were called forward. And they were presented with four flights and spending money to go back to Vietnam to see his parents and his siblings and his family. And he wept. What if... What if each one of us here today were to look outward more, were to zoom out enough to see the needs, the challenges, and the desires of those around us? Our coworkers, our fellow students at school, in our classes, business owners and managers, those who report to us to understand their needs and desires, family members, our closest friends, our spouses, our children, kids, to see the needs of your parents. Wow, what a thought. They have needs too? What if each one of us were to begin to see the needs of others more and more? And what if this church as a church body were to see the needs in our community for Wilmot, as Julie shared earlier? What if we were to see our community's needs and meet them in whole new ways with an outward mindset. What type of church would this be? What type of impact could we have? What type of legacy could we leave? Thanks for listening online with us. We trust you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. If you have a prayer request or an encouraging story about what God has been doing in your life, please email us at amen at wcmc.ca. God bless.